Welcome to Photo Mission Focus, Discussing Photography, a podcast all about the things that we love about photography. This is Focus on Rotation, where I have different hosts joining me at the desk as we share and learn each week. Come and enjoy this week's episode with us. Welcome to this edition of Photo Mission Focus. I've got Robert back with me, and Robert, last episode we were talking about the process you've been going through archiving your images, and we talked a bit about how you were selecting some of those images and that type of stuff, but on this one I thought we might just talk a bit more about the technical side of, and some of the challenges as as well as of doing it. As mm. Well, as I said, it, it really you start out with this, uh, or I did anyway, the thing has to be consistent throughout yes in terms of lens used primarily camera yes and light source so as you take the stuff in it's all compatible one with another so i quickly came to the conclusion i actually needed two rigs okay with the same light source one for 35 millimeter and one for the larger formats yep so what was the light source that you were using? What light source? I bought a an LED yep. light source yep. from a supplier. Yep. That's it. And and what particular colour temperature did you set that for? Daylight. Daylight, yep. Yep. And uh, there's a camera at the same spot, of course. Yep. I don't try to play tricks with uh, colour space or profiles or any of that sort of stuff. Yep. So the two are compatible, one with another. And then it's a matter of trying to figure out how physically to mount the camera so that everything will work properly. So I have two rigs, one for 35 and one for something bigger. Yes, yep. Now, the stuff bigger is a trick because it goes from 645 format, which is, you know, 15 frames, a roll of 120, right up to 4x5. So I tend to shoot the roll films in one session and the 4 by 5s in another session. Is that just so because the setup obviously is different? Yep. So you basically can, you can set up and get into a bit of a rhythm. Yep. And but the trick, of course, is to what I did was I, I met, what I decided to do was work at waist level. So I made a bench which had everything on top of it. It was on wheels, so it could be put away and taken out at the appropriate time. Yep. I had a dust cover made for the whole rig, which could cover the whole rig when it was sort of put away. It required me having two tripod heads bolted onto the rig. And those of who are photographers know this is pretty simple, but you have to make sure that the centre of the lens is in the centre of the image you're shooting. So consequently, it was a matter of working out the various focal lengths I required for the distance from, say, a full-frame 4x5 down to a 645 negative. And I ended up using my Cenar rig and rebuilding it so that it was adaptable for this. Yep. So if you look at the thing, uh, for those of you who have any knowledge of architecture if you look at it in elevation in other words from the side or in profile the line must run through the center of the image 
through the centre of the lens and to the back of the camera. Yes. So that's the way I did it. I worked it out so that everything was in line. I uh, physically had a block of hardwood made to elevate the tripod head to that central point, and that's the way it works. And it's interesting because so the process you're kind of explaining there too is that you are actually striving to get everything right in camera again because what some people might do when they scan an image in a flatbed scanner and they put it in a bit skew if they simply straighten it, which loses a little bit of the image. So you were actually kind of going through that process of, as you were capturing it, it was actually basically did not need any more additional work. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, we don't use Photoshop. Yep. At all, the way we do this. Everything's done in Lightroom. Yep. And, and, and what's the process in Lightroom? Is it is it to tweak to tweak some of the, some of the elements, or is it just a way just to manage the the file? Well, we don't tweak anything. Yep. By and large, uh, because the original exposures were correct. Yep. We're making correct exposures and reproductions, really, of the original exposure. Yep. And at the moment, all we're doing is taking them in, converting them to DNGs. Yes. Making sure all the metadata is spot on. You know, setting up all the metadata to start with, which was, you know, with my copyright thing and all the bits and bobs. Yes, yep. Uh, but then we have a field of, uh, you know, who the original client was, when it was shot, a description of the image. So all the keywords pop up as you go along. And um, if we want, we we are slowly getting to a point now where as my shooting is becoming less we are using time to begin converting the files that are negative, both black and white in colour, through Negative Lab Pro. Yep. Cropping and just making sure everything looks similar. Yep. I mean, consistent, should yes. I say. The way we kept track of numbers is that uh, I've talked before about the database. Yes, yep. which, which is kind of an important thing that once you've... You've got a big archive of things. You have to be able to kind of, you yeah, know, label yeah, it's, them. It's not important. It's critical. Yeah. It's absolutely essential that you know exactly what that number means. And, you know, the way we used to do it manually is the way we're now doing it in the electronic space. A job comes in, you give it a number. The way we used to shoot was the, the number would be transferred to a piece of paper that was stuck on a wall. And each time you did something to that job, you took the piece of paper down, you wrote on what you did, and then it would go for invoicing and we would send out the invoice with everything on it and that job sheet would go attached to the invoice, the original invoice. Yes. And all of the bits we did in the job would be in the job book. You know, we originally gave it a number. Uh, it would have a description of the client. The job book was... The, really the key to the whole thing, and I've still got all those job books. Okay. So some of them I'm actually renumbering so they're sequential in my system because the original job number, once we decide to take it into the system, becomes a little irrelevant. Yes, yep. So the new numbers given follow it through. So what I would do is be presented, I've got a light table that's about, uh, in the old money, five foot long, by about uh, a foot and a half wide. If necessary, I can lay out about seven or eight rolls of film on it to do editing. Yes. 
And what I would do is uh, just very simply write the job number on a piece of paper, photograph it, so that that stayed in the, you know, the digital file. Yes. I would then shoot the pictures, you know, the edited things into the, you know, onto the um, the raw images, and they would go all into the computer. Then over time, once we've numbered everything and it's got the keywords and all that stuff, we'd be presented with a, a screen on the computer which would have, you know, a picture of a number. Yes, yep. And then all the pictures that followed it would be numbered accordingly. So when you get to a point where you've done a couple of thousand, you just go back and take out the numbers because you now know that they're secure and fixed and all that sort of stuff. Yep. So in, in that process, what of the images that you've started to digitise, what's the earliest images? Do you know the kind of the, some of the years that some of those early ones were taken? Well, I've moved around a lot. I started in the 70s and there are images that are still with the age newspaper in Melbourne, which hopefully I can get access to one day. Yes. But in 1976, I spent a year in the great state of Queensland. Yes. And I moved around shooting pictures for a magazine. Now, that's really the first start. That's the comprehensive start. Yes. I then lived in Hong Kong for three years and travelled a bit, so I've got that. Then I moved back to Melbourne and after a brief period of working on my own, I teamed up with another photographer named Ian McKenzie and we had a large business in Melbourne uh, which did work for many different types of people, government departments, large businesses and small, some editorial work for various newspapers. Yeah, it starts really in 76 Yep, uh, with, uh, with Queensland. And a lot of stuff from Hong Kong that I have was really just personal stuff because, once again, a lot of the transparencies and so forth went to the client. Yes. I did a job in 78 in Canada, the Commonwealth Games in Edmonton. I was one of the official photographers for the record book there. Yes, yep. Those transparencies, of course, went to the Commonwealth Games Foundation in Canada the only copies of those I've really got, and I won't be taking them into the archive, are copies of the subsequent book, of which I had a number of pictures sort of published. Yep. Was it personal stuff that you shot at that time as well, in 78? Uh, not overly. Yep. I uh, I spent a bit of time in the US. I, I'd, I'd come out of... Uh, I'd left Australia with the intention of heading for New York, to be quite honest with you, to try and crack it, yep. as they say. By the time I got there, been away from sort of mainland, mainstream stuff in Australia by about three or four years. And uh, I got to New York and had a look around and, you know, met a lot of people. The photo agencies in those days were big, of course. Yep. I was there at about the time Rick Smolin was going across the Simpson Desert uh, shooting the, the Camel Lady series because I met his agent in New York and he told me all about it because yes, I was yep. Australian. And that was the time I was there and it was very exciting and all that sort of stuff and everybody was very uh, lovely as they are in the US and accommodating and so forth. And it got to a point where I, when I got back to uh, 
to Hong Kong after being away for about four months, got back home to there, I sort of had to decide pretty much what to do from that point onwards. And I suppose when you boil it all down, the prospect of living out of a suitcase for the next 30 years didn't really fill me with a lot of joy. Yes. There was a lot of really terrific work being done by all sorts of people all over the world, you know, through these photo agencies. And it was a, uh, it was the, you know, it was a heady time. But as I said, the practicality of, of, you know, I like sleeping in my own bed. Yes. You know, it has a certain allure. (laughs) (laughs) And I had seen people, you know, even people that I knew in Hong Kong who were on that uh, wheel, for want of a better word, because it is a bit of a mouse wheel. You're continually running and, you know, you are getting somewhere, but but really it's always just this sort of thing out of sight. You you don't really see your work because you shoot it. It goes off to the agency for processing and all that stuff and the money comes in. And But, yeah, you're always on the go. You've got to worry about weather and scheduling and timing and getting to bloody Singapore by Tuesday and if it's raining you can't shoot and then you've got to be somewhere else on Thursday. And Yes, yep. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's not the greatest thing. Yep. Uh, I had the the distinct pleasure of meeting a, a magnificent New Zealand photographer named Brian Brake and worked with him for a, for a while in Hong Kong because the studio in which I was uh, operating from was, was his base when he was in Hong Kong and uh, a magnificent fellow and just a great, great, great photographer. Yep. But even Brian in his rather... Um, laid back and gentlemanly in a vuncular way, you could tell he was always under pressure, sort yeah. of going from here to there, shooting this and doing that and jumping on a plane and so forth. And it just didn't fill me with a lot of, you know. Yes, that's, that's it. Yeah. So with the, again, we'll get, we'll kind of come back to the the archive project that you're doing. Yep. So the archive project, it'll it'll be av- basically available for anyone to to jump on your website and basically have a look at those images and in the fullness of time, yes. Yeah. So I haven't yet made any decisions about how to do that. Yes. Because there's so much stuff. Yep. And even though I'm comfortable with the fact that we can find it, yes. I really don't want people poking around in it in any great way. So probably what I will do when we get to the point where we mesh the two and the the eyeballing of the images as I adjust the database to name people and, you know, tidy up all the stuff. Yes. I think probably what I will do is upload the database, not the images. Yes. And then if people have an interest by finding whatever's there on the database, which should be properly described, then they can start a conversation about how we get them, you know, thumbnail, low-res proofs or whatever. Yep. I've always been aware that my little system isn't the last word in quality. Yes. Even though we've shot raw files... They've come through a macro lens. They're all consistent. They're all clean and crisp and well-ordered. There's no comparison with sending the original negative off for a seriously solid drum scan or a 
yep. or whatever else, where the, you know you have a first generation scan of some serious file size yep. to do prints from or reproduce from or whatever else. Yep. So that's why I've done it this way. If necessary, we can go back to the original silver-based object yep. and make a scan yep. if somebody wants something really good. Because, look, one of the challenges, and it might be interesting just to learn a little bit how how you're storing those original negatives and how you're mm. managing that because that's a whole that's a whole another area that you have to kind of manage as well totally there is a company called printfile who make a vast range of archival sleeves of various sizes and shapes yes at the moment if for instance i've got a job number with five or six frames of two and a quarter square, they are placed together and inserted into a four by five sleeve and numbered on the outside. Yep. In the fullness of time, hopefully what I will do is get to a point where each of those individual pieces of film will be placed in its own little sleeve, but... At the moment, it's a matter of both practicality and cost. Yes. And the the doing of that job will probably be the last job. Yep. Which is to place them in archival sleeves, in archival boxes, numbered individually, and that's the end of the job. Are they stored in some type of environmentally, like the temperature-controlled environment at the moment? No. No. No, sadly. Yeah. But they have, you know, there are... They're a, they're a hardy bunch, some of these images. Some some fare better than others. Oh, yeah, yeah. 35, if you've got a Kodachrome. Yep. And I shot pictures in 1978. I stumbled across the one of the early gay festivals in San Francisco. At that stage, it was called the Castro Street Festival. Yes. And for some reason, I was on my way from somewhere to somewhere and I was in San Francisco I had a full bag of cameras and a huge amount of Kodachrome and I shot three or four rolls on that day and everybody had a fantastic time and there's all sorts of interesting and relevant social history there. Yep. I mean, Harvey Milk was still alive, I think, at that stage and it was a big old day. The Kodachromes from that day have survived beautifully yes. despite the fact I've lugged them all around the world and up and down here and yep. uh, some of it, Cullen eggs, particularly agfa, <laughs> sort of tell you that. <laughs> but a lot of the agfa stuff has started to fade a lot quicker than a lot of the Kodak stuff. And I've I've experienced that exact same. My transparencies, my agfa agfa ones, mm. haven't fared as well as the Kodachrome. Yeah. I never shot agfa chrome. Yep. But uh, you know the the Fuji stuff has survived magnificently. Yep. You know the the Velvias and the Proviers and the you know, some of the stuff that we had towards the end of the film era, you know, the variety of emulsions that were available for various jobs were just fantastic. Yes, yep. Uh, and I, you know, I mean, if I did a scan now of an aerial I shot of the Great Barrier Reef on on a Hasselblad 40mm lens with a polarizer from a helicopter and I got a big scan of that done now, I would just challenge anybody with any digital camera of any size except maybe these last, you know, huge things. 
yep. to even go anywhere near the quality. Yes. You know, either colour or uh, transmission of detail. That's, that's it. I mean, some of, some of that technology was so so good at the time and like yeah. I said, it's it's um, it stood the test of time and I think a lot of people go back and look at that and it still becomes a bit of a benchmark for mm. people doing mm. things. Robert, what would probably be interesting to share your thoughts on, say, people out there who've got, who are sitting on like an archive of images of their own is to, I suppose, uh, you know, make people think about what they might do with their own stuff and how they might start to move forward to mm. to preserve it. Well, in the in the great scheme of life, you've got to have some time. Yes, and how you use your time is always a decision you make. And it's you know I, I have to, despite the fact I've embarked on this project and all that stuff, I'm still confused about why I've done it. Yes, uh, I'm still not quite sure. Who do you think the audience would consume this in the future? I mean, who's you know that's not something you've even thought about. I imagine I've thought about it a lot. Okay, um, but I don't know. Yep. One of the things about life is that we can't see the future. No. Uh, a lot of people get paid a lot of money to try and predict it, but they are invariably off target. Yes. And who knows? I mean, it may get to a point where it's left to my wonderful and uh, at times um, determined daughter. Yep. She may just press delete. Who knows? But I don't know is the answer to that. I don't know who's going to want it or need it or any of that sort of stuff. And it may be I look for some people sitting on you know family archives of of uh, stuff. That's a separate area. That's a separate area because yeah. that, and that's that's something I think that people probably haven't always thought about what to do with them. And I think that's uh, but well, it, but I think you touched on earlier in the, in the first episode on this one we about trying to get some type of government or some type of agency or some type of reciprocal place that. People could deposit images for posterity that doesn't really exist today. No, it doesn't. Um, and I, I, I don't know why. I mean, we have the tools now to be able to clearly label stuff. Yes. We have the tools to clearly or easily store stuff. Uh, I think look, one of the things that came from um, with the bushfire tragedy, there was a lot of regional historical societies that people had gifted photography material to which was lost sadly lost in the bushfires when bushfires yeah. come through towns which is sad that those records are they can't be replaced people hadn't thought of maybe preserving them in another way and i think this is something that we probably as a society we need to start thinking about how do we do that what's it look like is there is there a you know, is it going to be a private entity thing? Is it a government thing? Who creates a this this you know pigeonhole where you can put images in if you've got something historical mm. to preserve it? Well, it's a subject grander than I have the skill to em- embrace, really. But in the end, there is no excuse anymore. Yep. the tools are there. Yes, and they're not very expensive anymore. The storage and preservation of data uh, I would hope is now getting to a point where it will be there for a, quite a long while yes I mean we've seen even since digital came along a number of systems which have come and gone you know well we're, we're seeing the demise of the DSLR at the moment we're seeing yeah, well, mirrorless technology coming through so we're seeing 
change is always happening in that space. Yeah, it is. But the end result, the camera has always been just a tool. Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, how you use the tool is up to you. But, you know, it is really in the end just like a car. It gets you from A to B, you know. I think the one thing that people don't probably think about, and you kind of alluded to it, when you were talking about job sheets and different things before about how you'd, you know, everything happened on that job, the even the you know cost of film and all that type of stuff is all factored into it because photography, the end result is a commodity that yeah. that's either that's either you know sports sold whatever, um, it's created for a purpose, and I think that that's the the thing where probably people don't think about photography so much as a as a commodity anymore. It's mm. kind of changed, I think, in people's perceptions. Well, yes, I suppose it has. Not in mine, uh, but then again, you know, I was brought up a different way. Well, I think you, but you understand that you understand, I suppose, the the blood, sweat, and tears that goes into creating an image. Well, yes, it used to be. It's not so much anymore. Yep. I mean, I had my young student person helping me the other day. I just stumbled across an image, and he's he. Uh, we were discussing how it was done and why it was done and why I shot on four by five and and all that sort of stuff and the the whole thing was really I mean I may as well have been talking about the moon landing it was something that just didn't even though he's very keen and he's all that sort of stuff you know just the mere thought processes that went into doing that one particular job which I'd forgotten all about until I found the pictures in the file yes. And the only reason I showed it to him was that someone, I'd probably had a work experience or someone there who'd shot some 35 mil and there I am sitting on the floor with a 4x5 camera and the lighting system and all that, you know, some some student had recorded it and it's in my file that I even bothered to sort of show it to him, you know. Yep. Um, but, yeah, the the ability to make images these days has become so convenient and it's that, it's that convenience that's the that sort of has been aligned with lack of value, I suspect, because it's not that difficult anymore. Therefore, it's something we do like having a bottle of water or, you know, and that's a pity, but it is what it is. Look, it is. You know, unfortunately, we've seen, I suppose, we've, we're living in an era where we're seeing so much technological change in a very short period of time mm. that and like i said and photography is no different and like i said the whole i think the the pivotal point for photography as changing in society has been the, the camera phone I mean, undoubtedly and I, I can just remember i mean i grew up in a household where we had a dark room underneath the house so photography was a big part of my father was a photographer it was a big part of you know, our lives. So we've documented lots of different things. So there was lots of family archival events yep. recorded. Yep. And, you know, that was shot on a, on a, um, typically up in the cabinet there somewhere, 35 mil practica with a Carl Zeiss lens on that, 35 mil. Mm. Mm. People then never had that level, but people always had a compact camera. And Kodak did very well with their compact cameras. So people would pull out the compact camera and shoot the birthday and they shoot that. Now it's, People don't own those cameras. Yeah, but a lot of, you know... They pull out the phone and that's where it's recorded. But a lot of those pictures that were taken are now, you know, sitting in drawers somewhere or get thrown out when granny dies or whatever else. I mean, it's the 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 new disregard for images is not new. No, no. But uh, I think the and thing... And it's like a lot of people say, oh, 
I, I value the good old days. Well, sorry, no. I'm old enough to remember the good old days. And by and large, they were pretty shit. Yes, yep. You know, the food was lousy. You know, the wine was very ordinary. Furniture, you know, we are so much better off by all these advancements. The water's cleaner. Uh, our kids are more secure. They're being educated better. They're a lot smarter than we are or ever were. Um, and they, you know, it's we have come a long way. The good old days, take it from me, weren't that good. Good. Domestic violence was common. Yes. Flogging of children was standard practice. Yes. We have stepped away from these things. The disregard of images, I'm sorry to tell you, is not new. Yes. They go in the tip along with funny-looking glassware. Yes, yep. Uh, which somebody thinks has value, but in the end, no one's willing to pay for. Oh. So, yes, you're right. It's easier to delete stuff now than it was. It's easier to create stuff, but the deletion of it is no new thing in my view. Right. So just to close this, this episode out, Robert, what what would your advice to be someone, like I said, thinking moving forward about their their work's life, life's work of images, what should they be thinking about doing something similar to you? Do you think it's something or is it just a personal choice thing? Well, just as I can't see the future, I can't tell people how to think. Yep. I mean, sadly, or luck, gladly, you know, that's the way it is. Yes. People have to value things and put the time to them that they want to. Uh, they can't get anybody else to do it for them. If they have the knowledge, they can do it. The problem is that most people lack the knowledge and the skill to do it. Yes. Even if they've got the time. There are many retired people with oceans of time but they've been a you know a public servant or a whatever and they don't have the skill a dentist or a doctor or you know unless they tool themselves up and learn the skills yep then they may have a desire to do that but the skill is the trick it's not just the hardware it's the time and the, the ability to do so if you if you are in the photographic world and you have a lot of stuff that needs to be archived then Buddy, get off your bum and get doing uh, because you have the skills. Yes, that's it. Uh, and you have the ability and you've got the computer and you know how to, you know, you can teach yourself how to do bloody spreadsheets and, you know, you can learn all sorts of stuff these days off, you know. I mean, if you can learn how to change a tap washer, for God's sake, yep. off YouTube, you can learn how to take pictures. You yep. can, you know, you can learn what a macro lens is and a, all that sort of stuff, and, and all that stuff's there in your hands. You've just got to get on with it. That's it. All right. Robert, look, thank you for sharing some of your some of your journey, I suppose, of your, your photography journey, and, you know, particularly around archiving images, and I think it's something that people probably should think more about moving forward into the future about where, where their images are going to end up. So ask themselves that question. So thanks for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. That's all for this episode this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a comment and don't forget to follow us on your favourite podcast app and social media sites. Remember, photography is a pursuit where there's always something new to learn. Safe and happy shooting, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>